Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated and let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would speak now through your word. That you would give us grace to receive faith to believe and to endure. In Christ's name, amen. So there's a pattern that happens in Paul's epistles. Let me pause for a second and say, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, so I'm not saying that this is Paul. I am saying, though, there is a pattern that happens in Paul's epistles that seems to happen here in the letter to the Hebrews. And that is this, that Paul will spend most of the time, most of the book. The letter, I should say, we call them books, but they were letters. He'll spend most of the letters unpacking and explaining what we could rightly call the indicatives of the gospel. And then he brings us to what we could rightly call the imperatives of the gospel. Right? So those words, we'll unpack them in just a second. But the indicatives of the gospel... And then the imperatives of the gospel. The indicatives of the gospel are really is the gospel. That proclamation that is true about who we are because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And the imperative of the gospel is what we're called to do in Christ Jesus. Now, having grown up in the church, and maybe you've experienced this, One of the things that I experienced was that we always taught the imperatives of the gospel first. You must do this. You ought to do this. Do this. Don't do this. A Christian does this. A Christian doesn't do this. And we don't even frame it that way. We don't even say a Christian does this and this is God's law and you must follow it. And then if you don't, 
So imperative first, then indicative. If you don't, well, God will forgive you. But Paul, and it seems like actually Peter and James and John and whoever wrote this letter to the, to the Hebrews, uh, they come at it the opposite way. Instead of how I was trained, where the imperatives of the gospel preceded the indicatives of the gospel, hopefully you're still with me. If you grew up the way that I did, and, and, and if you heard the way, and, and listen, this is so common in evangelicalism. This is so common even in mainline Protestantism. This idea that the imperatives of the gospel precede the indicatives of the gospel. That we earn God's favor through our obedience to God's law. But all of the epistle writers, all of the New Testament seems to scream the exact opposite. And they do it remarkably using the Old Testament, using the law. They say that before God gave the people of Israel, Abraham's children, the law, he gave them the promise and the blessing that they were children. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he was given the command to be circumcised. Do you see that? Like Moses was they, the, the, the people of God were, were called out of Egypt. They were released from bondage. They were given the promise of a home well before they received the law. The indicatives of the gospel always precede the imperatives. And, they, and, and that pattern continues throughout Scripture. And here's the thing throughout the New Testament. Here's the thing is when you realize that it changes everything. I do not do and work in order to receive the blessing and the acceptance of God. In Christ Jesus, I am fully accepted. And therefore, I am free to live a life of faithful holiness, to suffer and to endure. The indicatives, who you are in the gospel, precede the imperatives, what God has called you to do. But that does not mean that God has not called us to live in a certain way. See, at this point in Hebrews now, we've transitioned from belief in the gospel to life in the gospel. We've transitioned, transitioned from the indicatives of the gospel and just holding on to that. Like, that's what's amazing is throughout this book, what we've seen is that just holding on to the fact that I am a dearly loved child of God is hard enough without any of the commands to live a certain way. Like, we are fighting for faith and, and we're transitioning for this. And, and, and we've gotten this picture of the goodness of God. And now we have this reflection on the question that if you're familiar with uh, uh, the late friend. Francis Schaeffer, that he spent a whole book unpacking this question, how then shall we live? How do we live? If the gospel is true, if we are dearly loved children of God, if we've been set free, if we are to endure in faith, then what does life enduring in faith look like? And the author of this letter tells us that it is a lot like running a race. The Christian life is analogous to running a race. And, and just like we talked about uh, with the, 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 the kids briefly, this isn't a race where it's like there are, there's the one person who wins, right? I, I, saw, I saw this video um, the other day on Twitter, and 
It was these two women who had been running a marathon, and they were right there at the end, and they looked at each other, and they were celebrating, and they, like, held their hands up, and they started to, like, slow down to walk, and then this third woman just, zoop, right on by. Like, she's like, y'all celebrate. I got the ribbon, and she won the race. Uh, and there's so many, like, lessons in that, but this isn't that type of race, right? Like, this isn't the type of race. It is a marathon, but it's not the type of race where there's a winner and then losers, right? This is, this is like four people who, and I think it's evident by my appearance and just by the general way that I talk about racing, that I have not run a marathon or a half marathon or any case, none of them. <laughs> I could have a 0.0 sticker on the, like lifetime total, maybe I've run a marathon, lifetime total. But, but one of the things that is amazing, and I have friends who run marathons and we all do, we, you know, this is DC and people do it. Um, And in spite of the fact that the original marathon runner did die, right? That's the story, guys. Come on. Like, I'm not making this up. Like, in spite of that, people run, and, and what you see is that they're not running against the other runners. They're running against themselves. They're running against their last time, maybe, but more than that, they're running to finish the race. This is that type of a race. So often, we've been trained and, and inculcated in our culture that the only type of race and the only type of life worth living is the competitive one where you find the person who is the competition and you win. That's how you win. But the the race that scripture gives us is not like that. It's a race that is about finishing. And this is what's amazing about marathons, right? Because if you've been at the finish line or like me, seen videos of the finish line on Facebook, right? Like then you know that even that last person who's just kind of like gasping over the edge. Like when they get to the end, even if they're the last person, there is just this wealth of celebration because they finished. And even that last person, two, three, four days later, can say what I can't. I ran a marathon to the very last mile, Beastie Boy style, right? And some of you will understand that reference and that's fine. They ran the marathon, and this is what it's about. This is the Christian life. It is running a race. And when we think about what type of race it is, it's what we've been saying over and over again. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I want to briefly detour here. Um, um, Sometimes when I step to the side of the pulpit, I feel like that kind of makes it whatever. (laughs) We've been at this for like four, four and a half years as a church, Union Church. We've been doing this for like four, four and a half years. If you consider when we started meeting uh, for the first time, not even in our old house on K Street, but at uh, Nate and Nick's house, uh, all those years ago as a community group with Redeemer, thinking about hey, we're going to plant a church. Like, it has been a long time. And there is a notion, <clears throat> culturally speaking, the way we think about church planting and churches is very much a sprint. 
Like, we hit the ground running, we sprint fast, and then look, everything is... And it's not always like that. In fact, globally speaking and historically speaking, it's quite the opposite. Church planting is a marathon. Church life is a marathon. Being a family, growing in faith, it's a marathon. And it would make sense that our life together as believers would be a marathon, wouldn't it? Because our life individually as believers, that walk of faith, that run of faith, it's a marathon. And we have to run it till the end. It's not a sprint. And here's the thing is... When you look at, and, and, and if you're like, why is he going so hard into race? It's literally the analogy that was given to us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, a marathon and a sprint are very different. Now, if you want to talk about sprinting, in high school, that would have been where I would have been. Like, let's sprint, let's get it done, let's be done. And, and, and if you have runners in your family, which my, my mom was, and, and you know we have athletes and runners in my family, and you train differently for a sprint than for a marathon. Like if you look at the body of sprinters, if you look at Usain Bolt, if you look at the muscle formation, everything in, everything that he works out, everything that he does is trained for immediate explosion. To get off of the line the fastest and to just explode and, and, and to be quick and, and to accelerate as quickly as possible so that that 100 yards or meters or that 200 meters, which is quick, so that he gets in front early enough and burns through that energy all the way till the end. And that's how they train with how they lift weights and, 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 and how they, they jump and do stuff in, like in water and, 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 and a lot of resistance so that they can get muscles that are explosive, right? And, and, and if you look at a marathoner versus Usain Bolt, you might not think that they were an athlete. There's a nimble, frailness. They're not training for explosiveness. They're training for endurance. They're training their body to be able to be as sleek as it possibly can, while at the same time having all of the things that it needs to endure a grueling, grueling run. If they were to be in a sprint, they would be destroyed. And yet, they are perfectly trained for the marathon. You see, the Christian life is analogous to running a marathon. It's the type of race that you need endurance for, which is why the author says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right? So often things happen in the world and we say this, life is short. Life is short. But here's, here's the fact is that for most of us, life is actually really, it's long. Right? Maybe in the grand scheme of things, it's short, it's all a blip, it's a vapor. But when you think about it, like life is a long run, a long struggle, a long race. And, and faith and the Christian walk is that. And so we have to prepare ourselves, we have to lead lives, we have to uh, 
practice faith, we have to believe the gospel in such a way we need theological and practical formation that allows us to run lives of endurance. We're not here for sprints. We're here for the long haul. And see, here's, here's another difference between a marathon and a sprint, right? Like a sprint and, and the Christian life, it's the type of race that you need endurance for, but it's also the type of race with room for ups and downs. Sprints are about technical precision and perfection. A half a second, a tenth of a second, a hundredth of a second, slow, off of the block, and you lose. The margin for error is zero, or you lose. You turn at just a a wide enough angle, and you've created enough more time that you lose. The pressure is insane. And here's the thing is we often feel that way about the Christian life, don't we? We feel like the margin of error is slight. It's slight, and I'll give a different analogy in this way because I see this a lot as a pastor, 12 years in pastoral ministry, talking to people about what they ought to do, what God wants them to do, what's the will of God for me. And we have been taught that the will of God is a tightrope across this chasm, this long, seemingly unending chasm. And if you misstep one way or the other, you will plummet forever into this nebulous space called outside the will of God. And it's terrifying. And I see people completely paralyzed. Completely paralyzed by the fear of one misstep that drops you outside of the will of God. Or one sin. Or one mistake. Or one whatever. There, if we live life in such a way that we say we get heaven by grace. But somehow life isn't also led and lived with that same grace. You see, with a sprint, there's no room for ups and downs. There's no room to mess up. But in a marathon, there is. In a marathon, sometimes your pace changes. In a marathon, sometimes you're going uphill and it's just slow. In a marathon, there can be a moment or two or minutes or I don't don't want to exaggerate too much, but there can be extended periods of time where you are not at your best. And so a lot of the times when we think about the Christian life and the Christian walk as a marathon and not a sprint, that may cause us to tighten up for for just a second. Can you allow it to liberate you? In the Christian life, there are ups and there are downs. There are times where you will feel very connected to God and times where you won't. There will be times where you have a strong grasp on and a strong control over sin in your life. And there are times when you won't. And through it all, there is grace for the ups and the downs. It's that type of race. And remarkably, it's the type of race that many people are unwilling to run. And that's what the author of Hebrews is running up against. There are ups and there are downs. But unlike a good marathon, I, can't, I can imagine there would be a marathon that this would happen. But unlike a good marathon, 
Like, there are also people throwing stuff at you as you run. Like, if you could imagine, like, you're running a marathon and instead of people like, you can do it, yeah, yeah, you know. Like, they're, like, running out and trying to trip you or they're, like, throwing things. Like, life, the world, people, like, this type of race, there are things that trip you up all the time and your legs start to burn and sometimes you're like, I know it's there, but I can't see the end. And it's a race that even though we've been given everything we need to run it, we often, and we see people often say, I I can't, I won't, not anymore. They pull up. They can't run. They're tired of walking. They can't even crawl anymore. And I don't say that in judgment. I say that as somebody who has been at that point, at at the precipice, at the edge of being done. It's a, it's a race that is difficult and that many are unwilling to run. So what type of race is it? It's the type of race you need endurance for. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a race with room for ups and downs. It's a race that, that, that nonetheless people feel and seem unwilling to run. But here is the thing. It's a race with, in which the prize has already been secured. Right? The prize is already guaranteed. And the prize is worth it. The prize is worth the run. Think about what Paul says in Philippians that, that I endure, right? I run with endurance the race that has been set before me that I might receive the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul understood that the race was worth the prize, at the, or the prize was worth the run. The, uh, another way to say it, uh, right? Guys, the juice is worth the squeeze. It really is. The prize is worth the run. Think about this for a second. I'm up here. I'm telling you over and over again, maybe too many times. I don't run. I have never run a marathon. I can foresee very few like situations in which I would run a marathon. But here's one. Right? Imagine for a second. After this was over, I don't know, somebody was sitting out in the hall. Uh, just a multi-billionaire. Like, you know what? I'm going to get this guy to run a marathon. They came up and said, you know what? If you run a marathon, run. I see you. If you, <laughs> if you complete a marathon, if you complete a marathon, I will give you right off the bat $500 million. No, it would take a lot less for me. Let's be honest. But, but for a second, I want our sights to be high enough. Right. We're not talking like just prize money. Like you finished. Here's ten thousand dollars. We're not talking just prize money. We're talking like like, you know, there's an amount of money that's like good for a prize. And then there's an amount of money that changes the course of your family forever. We're talking like generational changing prize money. So they come up and they say right here, right now, tomorrow, if you will run twenty six point two miles a marathon, you can walk, you can crawl. All you have to do is start at the finish and end. There's no time. Time limit, And at the end, I have for you 
$500 million, generational changing money. You just run it. You know what I would do? And you know what you would do? Like assuming that we believed this person and we saw that they really did have the means. And even there's a picture of the prize at the end, right? We would do it. I would do it. I'd be like, all right, cool. I'll finish the sermon guys in like three days. I'll see you. I'm going to go <laughs> run a marathon and you would run and, and maybe you would start running as fast as you could. Maybe not as fast as you could if you're smart, right? But you start running at a reasonable pace and then you get tired. You've never trained for the marathon. I have it. I've never trained for a marathon. And so then you start walking and then you, you just walk slower and slower. But in your mind, you're thinking about the fact that there is a prize at the end of this race that will change not just my life, but my children's life and my children's children's life. You see, the prize is worth the run. And here's the gospel. That Jesus has already secured for us the full inheritance of God in his work on the cross, which means at the end of this, there is, as Paul says, a weight of glory so great. There is a prize so wonderful and so certain that if we would just see it and believe it, we would run, we would walk, we would crawl, we would hope it's downhill and roll (laughs) our entire way to the finish line. The prize is worth the run. But here's the amazing thing. We don't even have to do that. The prize is ours in Christ Jesus, and we run the run, and we walk the walk. But in those moments where we can't run, and we can't walk, and even in those moments where we feel like we can't, the same Jesus who has bought for us the victory carries us through the entire race. We just rest in him. So now I ask you, why would we not run the race before us with endurance, looking to Jesus. It's a marathon, not a sprint, a Christian life. So here's the question that we have in the closing time that we have. How do we run it? Like, what happens? What's the mindset change? What happens that we run it? So the first thing that we give get is verse 1 in the beginning. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we have this cloud of witnesses that we talked about last week. These brothers and sisters who walked in faith in the Lord for something that they died without seeing, but that was fulfilled in Christ on the cross and in the church. They saw the promise fulfilled long after they moved from death into life. They ran with great endurance and we've seen their testimony and therefore now we have the evidence. Think about it this way. Think about uh, the, the person who wants to be an actor. Like anybody who wants to be an actor, I'm assuming... They want to be an actor because they saw a movie or they saw a series, a television series or they saw a play that was just so remarkable. And the more that they grew to love the theater, the more that they grew to love film, the more they grew to love the actual act of acting, they began to find that there, were a, there was a person or there were people 
that they just loved. And you hear it. You hear people talk about how, uh, you know, when you know, Denzel Washington says, you know, when I was younger, it was Sidney Poitier, and I would watch Sidney Poitier, and I would watch his movies over and over again. And it was in the way that he had this strength and this effortlessness. And there are people that you look at and you try and emulate not what they're doing because we're not trying to copy them. We're just seeing like, well, what was it? What was he looking for? How did he do it? Or when you hear people talk about an athlete, and, and, and so you get Patrick Mahomes, who's playing today in the Super Bowl, right? And, and he's saying, you know, I would, I would look at guys like Tom Brady. And, and, and at first, what I, was, what I was amazed in were these feats of athleticism uh, where he would just win again and again and again. And everybody else, myself included, just hated it, right? <laughs> but he would win over and over again. And at first, it was the Super Bowls. But then what did it become? That drive, that work ethic. How was it that he always knew where the open receiver was? How was it that he never checked down before he had to? If you don't understand what I'm saying, that's fine. You don't have to. But Patrick Mahomes did. And he would watch over and over again. And then we'd get even further. What did Tom Brady do in the gym? What did he do Monday through Saturday so that Sunday he was the greatest quarterback of all time? Right? It's that same thing. And we look at them and we say, all right, look at this great cloud of witnesses. What was it that caused them to do these things, and over and over again, if you did that practice, you saw what caused them to act. What was it? What was it? Faith. Faith. Faith that was tested. Faith that was seasoned. Faith that endured. We have this great cloud of witnesses, so let's look to them. Let's look at, for example, David, whom God called and who found himself with a great weight, a great suffering. That weight is suffering. That weight is persecution. That weight that is being talked about here in verse 1, that's what it is. It is a people who are finding that it is harder and harder to follow Jesus. David endured persecution and suffering at the hand of Saul, of his best friend's father, of the king whom he loved and served. And he was persecuted and yet he was able to lay aside that weight and sing songs of great faith to God. And in the same way, David had an issue with sin, a deep one, one that you see him over and over again in the Psalms just asking for grace for. And you see, when we look at them, we realize and we understand that the way we run this race is the same way that a marathoner needs to run. Every weight that you can get rid of needs to be set aside. Even if that weight is muscle weight, it's better to have the right muscle formation and that slenderness than to be Terry Crews trying to run a marathon, right? And every sin, which clings so closely to us. Now, throughout the context of this book, sin has meant primarily a lack of faith. It has been a technical word, right? It hasn't been sort of the common catch-all for the things we do that God tells us not to. In this moment, we see it used as both. That sin, that that lack of faith, that moving away, and that sin, that refraining from doing what God has commanded us or doing what God has told us not to, it's here, and it it does this thing. It, 
it clings so easily. It says, which clings so closely in the ESV and other translations. And what the Greek is getting at is that it easily ensnares you. It's enticing and it's quick. And it's all rooted in a lack of faith in God. And a lack of belief that God has given you everything that you need and that God will supply you with everything you need and that everything that you don't have, God didn't have for you and that God is faithful, which means that's best for you. All sin comes back to believing the lie over the truth of God. And so we look at this great cloud of witnesses, but then where else do we look? We look Verse 2, to Jesus. And he's called two things here. He's called the founder and he's called the perfecter of our faith. That word perfecter is finisher, founder, author, finisher, starter, completer, alpha, omega of our faith. He is the beginning and the end of our faith. He begins it in us and he completes it in us. He's the founder of our faith. Look at the rest of verse 2 all the way through verse 9. Briefly, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. First of all, the gospel, believing the gospel, gives us endurance to run the race because in it we have been set free to actually start walking. We sang it, our chains are gone. Not only can we leave prison, we can walk the race, run the race that that God has given us. Our chains are gone because of what Jesus has done. He's the author of our faith in his obedience to God, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Consider that he endured from sinners hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Every chain has been broken. Every enemy defeated. Jesus is our great and glorious David who has conquered Goliath so that we don't have to be afraid of the giants in our life anymore. He is our great and glorious Joshua who crossed through the Jordan and into battle so that we might enter the promise. He has done it. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You can shed blood because Christ's blood was shed. Because you are a son. He's the author of our faith. But he's also the perfecter of our faith. He completes our faith. And he does it through discipline, through grace. My son, this is verse 5. My son, it's us, children of the living God. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. He perfects our faith in us by discipline. In the same way that a parent says, I'm not trying to raise children, I'm trying to raise adults. And therefore, I will discipline and shape and mold my child into a 
into a, a, a citizen uh, who will contribute and who will love and follow Jesus in the same way that a coach says, I see the raw material, the raw talent, but I'm not going to let you just go on your raw talent. You will never be great. You will never be a champion until you have the discipline to develop that raw talent through practice, through when you do it wrong, running wind sprints, through when you do it run, running touch em alls. Like this is the type of thing that a good coach, that a good parent does. And God is a good father and he disciplines us. And when you feel the sting of the discipline of God, whether it's the feeling of weariness and your bones feeling like they're breaking, like David said, because of the sin in you, or whether it's just the very visible brokenness that David felt when God disciplined him and his son died, he and Bathsheba's first son. The discipline of the Lord stings, but it is for a purpose. He says, he disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness so this discipline from god allows us to share in his holiness and actually what it does is it strengthens us to continue running the race sometimes our sin makes us want to stop running the race Sometimes our burdens make us want to stop running the race. But when God disciplines us and when God restores us, what we find is that we will run the race till the end because we belong to God. And of those whom God has purchased in Christ Jesus, he will not lose one. He will not lose one. So we endure We run the marathon when our muscles burn, when our body aches, when all of our common sense says stop. We run the marathon looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and knowing this, that for the moment, the discipline and the pain, the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But in the end, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness that in the end, we will gain the reward which has been set before us. In the end, we get God himself because of the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let's look to Jesus. Let's pray.